Welcome to Creative Codex. If you are listening to this episode in April of 2020, it is very likely you are in quarantine because of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, I didn't think I'd ever say a sentence like that in my lifetime. I've watched way too many dystopian films and played way too many post-apocalypse video games to be comfortable with that statement. If you're at all like me, this all still feels strange and surreal. But by all accounts, we are going to be okay, eventually. I think social distancing is going to be the phrase that defines 2020. Because of this new antisocial habit, I think people have been forced to confront their own solitude in times when they might otherwise resort to escaping their own company by going to bars or outings with friends. Ironically, adapting this precaution has drastically reduced carbon emissions around the world. Less planes, less factories working, less cars. The Earth is probably feeling pretty good right about now. On that note, please make sure you check in on elderly folks and acquaintances that you know who have vulnerable health issues. I've been reaching out to folks whenever I can, when I'm heading out to the supermarket, and you know what? It feels pretty good. It's nice bringing someone food or necessities you know they need, and hearing and seeing them light up with gratitude. Feels good for the soul. So text or call these people, older folks, younger folks with vulnerable health issues. If you're like me, you dread talking on the phone, but it's never as bad as you think it will be, and the call is always shorter than you expected. Maybe this will become a habit for us, and when the world returns to normal, we will carry this forward. Imagine that, practicing more kindness and consideration for each other as a side effect of a pandemic. So with that said, let's get to the episode. During my social distancing enforced solitude, I noticed my mind getting philosophical on me. That is, when I wasn't homeschooling my daughter, trying to continue teaching uh, via Skype, and looking for a supermarket that still had toilet paper. Seeing the world in crisis has had a paradoxical effect on me. It's made me more thoughtful about humanity as a whole, humanity as an organism. We are individuals, but we are also a small piece of this larger thing. I think it's helpful to see our species from this bird's eye view. It kind of puts our behavior in perspective, right? on a societal level, but also on an individual level. And it led me back to the topic I obsess over, creativity, and a most serious question. Why does art exist? Why do humans feel the compulsion to be creative? If, after this whole pandemic scenario, we return to a society without art or without the compulsion for doing creative work, what would happen? Certainly, we don't need art the way we need sleep, right? But there is the sense that we still need it in some way. If you look at every culture in the world, no matter the region, you will find art, creative work. You may not find indoor plumbing, but you will find creative work. I've always believed that if we could understand the reason why art exists, it would lead us to discover a profound truth about the human experience. Hidden within that reason to why humans need art 
is a fundamental truth about humanity. And that's the question we will answer on this episode. Answering it will be no child's play. This is no one-sentence Google response or five-paragraph Wikipedia journey. No. For the length of this episode, we will deep dive into the fabric of human experience, and we will stretch our intellect to its breaking point to find the answer. Why do humans need art? Welcome to Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. Let's begin. Why Humans Need Art If we want to successfully tackle this seemingly insurmountable question, we should first establish our terms. We should make sure we are venturing forth from an agreed-upon starting point. Let's quickly define the word art. Now, even defining that word itself could warrant an entire episode or college semester, so we will need a really good definition. Let's consult the dictionary. Merriam-Webster defines art as the conscious use of skill and creative imagination, especially in the production of aesthetic objects. Well, that's quite clinical. How about Wikipedia's definition? Art is a diverse range of human activities in creating visual, auditory, or performing artifacts expressing the author's imaginative, conceptual ideas, or technical skill, intended to be appreciated for their beauty or emotional power." Unquote. Well, that's a rather cold and technical definition. So, I'm going to be honest. I never liked these definitions of art. It kind of feels like they were written by people who aren't artists. It almost feels like someone trying to explain a joke rather than just tell it to you. I have a personal definition for art, and it's very practical. Only one sentence. Here is my practical definition. Art is any work created through creative intent. It's as simple as that. This includes every creative medium, painting, film, illustration, sculpture, dance, but also poetry, writing, cooking, fashion, music, architecture, podcasts, you name it. Art is any work created through creative intent. Mind you, this doesn't comment on quality or value. Now, what is creative intent? It is the intention to bring something into the world which has not been there before. It's as simple as that. The base truth of creativity is the act of giving birth to something that does not currently exist or has not existed before in that form. For example, cars exist and have existed, but new models of cars are designed with creative intent. And so, a new car design is art. Our definition is sufficiently broad to include all works of creativity. If, on the other hand, you are making an exact replica of the Mona Lisa, 
that would not qualify as art, that would be mimicry. And although mimicry takes skill and craft, it is not art. Art is any work created through creative intent. That's my practical definition that simply defines a broad spectrum of human activity that we can label as art. Now, to go even deeper, what does that mean metaphysically? In a sense, why is art? For returning listeners, I'm sure you will appreciate that as a truly creative codex question. And here's my creative codex worthy answer. Why is art? Art is a natural byproduct of a complex intelligence attempting to understand the infinite nuance of its lived experiences. This is an insight about art that I have arrived at after many years of struggling with this question, studying art history, the journals of other creative minds, research in psychology, and my own experiences as an artist in various creative mediums. I believe art arises as an inevitability, as a particular species brain grows in complexity. Art is a natural byproduct of a complex intelligence, attempting to understand the infinite nuance of its lived experiences. We are daily faced with a unique problem. The problem is, our brains have a limited capacity, and yet they are trying to process a near limitless abundance of things, forms, experiences, and emotions. As a brain develops in complexity, in essence, it increases its capacity for perceiving this infinite nuance of life and the life it's experiencing. This is a real problem. The more complex our brains become, then the more we are bombarded by the infinite details of the life around us. And so, art naturally arises as a response to this increased difficulty, a sort of mechanism for processing the confusion of life. Art helps to orient us in the world. It helps us make sense of life. And that is why it sometimes feels like it is imbued with magic. When you are truly engaged with a work of art, either a piece of music, a painting, a poem, a photograph, when you are truly engaged, doesn't it feel like magic? It gives your mind the impression that this work of art is capturing a small piece of that infinity and presenting it to you. When that happens, it's a thing of wonder. Acknowledging that, I think we can agree that art provides great value in our lives. Still, it may seem unreasonable to say humans need art. Do we need it the way we need sleep? Would we die without it? The impulsive answer would be no, of course not. But I would like to present you with a radical argument. Without the compulsion to create and the curiosity to experience, humanity would not still exist. It is the compulsion for art that has allowed humans to adapt through tens of thousands of years in the harshest circumstances and to form communities that foster the survival of our species. Now, how can I say this with any confidence? Well, just look at what we learn from the earliest art that archaeologists find. The prehistoric cave paintings of our ancient human ancestors. These date to about 40,000 years ago in places like the Chauvy Cave in France and the Altamira Cave in Spain. 
places that confirm for us that ancient humans were creating art even before they were using written language, before there were cities or towns, and before we were practicing agriculture. When we were still only hunter-gatherers, we had the compulsion to create art. It boggles the mind. I explored this topic on episode one of this podcast, so if you're curious to know more about the Shovey Cave and its many fascinating findings, check that out. If you're still unconvinced that humans need art, let's try a thought exercise. What would we be missing if we lived in a world without art? Imagine this scenario. A few months from now, the entire world has recovered from this coronavirus pandemic. Everything is back to the way it was. People have returned to their jobs, children have returned to their schools, and crowds are once again allowed to congregate in public spaces. But one thing is missing. What if the compulsion to create is missing? What if no human on any small corner of the globe feels the compulsion to create anything new ever again? No one feels the need to paint a portrait or take an aesthetically pleasing photo or write a poem or cook up a new meal or direct a film. None of that. It just disappears from humanity. Imagine no one wants to strum a guitar and no one wants to write a new song. The radios only play the old songs, TVs only play the old movies, and the bookstores only sell the old books. It's not just the adults either. The children stop drawing trees, animals, and rainbows, and there's no compulsion to play with toys because there's no compulsion to tell new stories. What would a world like that look like? It seems pretty bleak, devoid of color and life. The progress of technology would slow to a snail's pace, as the compulsion to innovate would also likely disappear. In this scenario, it is crystal clear we would lose something. And that thing is culture. Culture itself. Some people argue that art serves as a container for the culture of the time. But I want to argue the opposite, actually. Culture is made of art. Work made through creative intent is what composes culture, and every culture has an unspoken goal, like a microorganism on a massive scale. The goal of every culture is to survive and thrive. And creativity very much serves that role within every culture. It is the life-giving force within all cultures. It regenerates the old ideas that call to be reborn, and it generates new ideas that keep the culture alive. And so with this, we are at the very least making a case for the value of art. Art creates culture and culture informs art. They are intrinsically linked. You cannot sever the ties of art and culture and still leave both standing. With that in mind, let's explore three primary reasons why humans need art. And where better to begin our journey than the heart of Italy during the Renaissance, where the world witnessed an explosion of creativity that influenced Western art for centuries to come. Part 1. The Mind Seeks Orientation 
In 1505, Florence's most famous sculptor, Michelangelo, was summoned to Rome by Pope Julius II. At only 30 years of age, Michelangelo had already secured his name in history by completing two timeless works of artistic genius, La Pieta and the Statue of David, two sculptures that many people even today consider to be the most recognizable sculptures in the world. La Pieta shows the Virgin Mary holding the dead body of Jesus in her arms, and the statue of David depicts the nude biblical figure of David. And so, in 1505, the Pope saw great promise in contacting Michelangelo and offering him an impressive commission to build the Pope's tomb, which would require 40 new statues within a massive structure. Michelangelo was overjoyed. He happily agreed. This was the work he felt destined for. Michelangelo had spent months quarrying the marble for the statues and began carving. But the project was riddled with problems and frustrations from the start. Within a year's time, the Pope seemingly changed his mind and reduced funding and resources for the tomb. Word reached Michelangelo that the real reason for the Pope's change of heart was due to another artist's interference. The architect Donato Bramante convinced the Pope to instead divert funding toward his own designs for rebuilding St. Peter's Basilica. Bramante told the Pope, the tomb will bring bad luck, your holiness. This naturally infuriated Michelangelo. But Bramante didn't just want to divert funding. He saw Michelangelo as a rival who needed to be dealt with. They quickly became enemies for life. He convinced the Pope that Michelangelo would be much better suited to painting rather than sculpture, and that a section of the new Sistine Chapel would be an ideal project for him, for a painting of the Twelve Apostles. The hidden intention here seems to have been to embarrass Michelangelo, so that all would see he was an inferior artist and be kicked out of Rome. The Pope summoned him and presented him with this new commission. But Michelangelo saw this as a mediocre pursuit that would not fulfill his artistic ambitions. Disappointed, he denied the commission. But he also saw an opportunity. He was motivated by the vision to do something unheard of. If the Pope truly wanted Michelangelo to paint, then he should give him license to do something unprecedented. He presented the Pope with a new idea. He would paint the entire ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, 131 feet long and 43 feet wide, with scenes depicting nine stories from the book of Genesis, the creation of life on earth. The Pope agreed and gave Michelangelo full artistic license to choose the subjects and their execution. To this day, the Sistine Chapel is considered one of the greatest achievements of art history. It was completed in only four years, featuring 5,000 square feet of frescoes painted by Michelangelo's own hand, extended above his head for hours and hours at a time. A massive painting with over 300 life-size human figures 
depicting scenes from the book of Genesis, a religious document equally revered by Christians, Jews, and Muslims. And it was through that unlikely twist of circumstance, Michelangelo again secured his name in art history, not only among the great sculptors, but also the great painters. Today, the Sistine Chapel receives over 5 million visitors a year, over 20,000 visitors per day. The viewing area is often so crowded that you can barely raise your camera. Most people don't know the backstory of its creation. These kinds of details are the stuff of tourist guides and art history geeks. So what are people seeing when they gaze up at this massive ceiling? Why do they travel hundreds of miles to this site to view this work of art? The mind seeks orientation. The mind is always searching for a way to better understand the infinite nuance of its lived experiences. A massive artwork like the Sistine Chapel ceiling directly addresses two very real problems. Where did we come from and why are we here? The themes in the paintings explore spirituality, morality, and the transcendence of human suffering. Whether you are religious or not, gazing up at this ceiling, you can't help but feel something. It tells the story of the human experience. The imagery feels compelling and familiar. The bearded figure of God soaring across the heavens, creating the sun and the moon, the separation of light from darkness, the casting out of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, the great flood. In the central panel of the ceiling you find the most famous image, the creation of Adam. He has his left arm outstretched, reaching to connect with the divine spark of life, his fingertip nearing the outstretched fingertip of God's right arm, as they move to meet each other. A curious detail here, I only noticed this recently. If you look closely at the arrangement of angels around God, you notice his left arm lovingly around another figure, a woman. We all focus so much on the reclining nude of Adam that we fail to see that right there, already beside God, is Eve, even closer to him than Adam. In spending time reflecting on these figures, you feel strengthened and lifted up to new perspectives. Perspectives on spirituality, morality, and life. Art gives us a tangible way of confronting these problems. And in that dialogue between a viewer and art, there is a transmission. Unspoken understandings are reached. Cogs in the machine of your mind move to accommodate new insights. It is your mind orienting itself to the paradox of its existence. Again, orienting itself within the infinite nuance of its lived experiences. It's the same reason why someone may abandon the traditional religion they were raised in, and yet still turn to traditions like Kabbalah or yoga, alchemy, 
or other esoteric traditions. Their mind seeks orientation. The perceived chaos of life is almost too overwhelming to handle without framing principles. And this is one of the great benefits of art. One of the primary reasons for why humans need art. As the mind seeks orientation, it turns to art and finds what it is looking for there. It absorbs the experience of processing the art and crystallizes it, adjusting its maps of the exterior and interior worlds. Although this orienting principle is especially present in religious art, it is not exclusive to it. We see it all the time in the most modern contexts as well. Take, for example, something as strikingly different from the Sistine Chapel as a TV show. How about the Game of Thrones? By the final season, the Game of Thrones became the biggest and most popular show in the world. As it aired week to week on Sunday nights, over 23 million people watched each episode. Those numbers are staggering and unfathomable. The Sistine Chapel tallies up 5 million viewers per year, and each episode of Game of Thrones tallies up 23 million viewers in one week. I believe that if the show was purely entertainment, with no deeper commentary on the human experience, it would never have amassed such a huge following. So there is something going on beneath the surface. In the year that Game of Thrones was airing its final season, it became a part of the shared culture of the entire world. I remember watching a leaked episode of the show that had apparently been posted by someone in India. I remember hashing over the complaints about the character arcs with a friend in Finland. I remember hearing that restaurants and bars all over the world were having Game of Thrones watch parties. All this for a work of art. Why does something like that captivate us so much? I think when films connect like this, we understand them unconsciously to be expressing a truth about human experience, much like the Sistine Chapel. And we need those reference points. We need to measure our own life by the lives of those characters. To come back to my earlier point, it is helping us navigate the infinite nuance of our lived experiences. In this case, something like Game of Thrones is exploring the emotional nuance of our lived experiences. For example, when Sansa Stark is being abused by Ramsay, we feel for her and want her to have revenge on him because we know what it feels like to be mistreated, betrayed, and perhaps even abused. We have lived experiences that resonate with that drama. Or when we see Jamie Lannister push the child Bran Stark out of the window, we are shocked and yet we understand the motivation that led to it. And something resonates in us that confirms that, yes, sometimes the world can be devastatingly unfair. It deals some people awful cards. And through this drama unfolding before us, we can observe the effects of such actions from the safety of our living rooms. Or when we see Jon Snow, outnumbered in the Battle of the Bastards, 
drowning in a sea of soldiers, suffocating him, and yet he is able to prevail. This speaks to us on a real emotional level. We all face seemingly insurmountable odds throughout our lives. Things can feel like mountains we must traverse emotionally or psychologically. Seeing a character we have connected with overcome something like this, it rings with a certain lived truth. That's the power of great stories. They are able to distill human experience into shared truths that we all understand. And then a great story even reveals to us truths of human experience which we never considered. Like when Arya develops an emotional connection to the Hound, otherwise known as Sandor Clegane. It is an unlikely relationship, perhaps one none of us have ever experienced, and yet it holds some human truth. We understand that such emotional bonding and mutual affection can develop under extreme circumstances. There are infinite shades of emotion, and good stories help us to navigate and understand their nuances. It isn't simply entertainment, it is serving real function and purpose. In films, TV shows, and books like Game of Thrones, the characters exist on the battleground of morality and human affection and they clash with each other in the ambiguous spaces in between. With each viewing or reading, we get to observe the moral and emotional problems of human life as they play out on a grand scale. And we get to measure our own moral compass and emotions by how we would behave and feel in those situations. There is great value in that. It is orienting us in the infinite nuance of our emotional landscape. The mind seeks orientation, and art provides. Part 2. High Creatives In Part 1, we addressed the value of art as it applies broadly to the public, the society, and also to the individual who digests the art, in whatever medium it might be. This was just one reason why humans need art. But what about the value of art to the artist who creates it? Why do artists need art? At its face value, art is a wildly impractical pursuit. It is essentially the least capitalistic thing you can do. The likelihood that you can make a living off of your creative works has always been drastically low. For example, if we factor in the thousands of hours that someone puts into mastering a musical instrument, and then compare that with an equivalent amount of time, thousands of hours, someone might put into being a plumber. Well, more than likely, the plumber is living comfortably from his labors, and the musician is living paycheck to paycheck. And when the pipes break, we know who is calling who. And yet, universities that specialize in creative fields still exist. Art galleries still feature new and living artists. And independent musicians and songwriters proliferate our social media daily. Would it be logical to assume that there are countless people out in the world who lack the most basic common sense? 
people who, instead of pursuing a field that will guarantee them a steady living in an uncertain future, these people instead pursue creative fields that have no guarantees of job placement and largely revolve around subjective opinions rather than solid facts. Can anyone really conclusively say what makes a good songwriter or what makes an award-winning author? Certainly not as obvious as what makes a good plumber. Clearly there's something else going on here. In exploring this kind of debate, we have to look at the psychology at play. How does an individual define value in their life? To some people, money defines the value in their life. To other people, family and friends define the value in their life. And if you can believe it, to yet other people, creative work defines the value in their life. Yes. For example, I've had these types of conversations with close friends throughout the years who lean heavily toward creativity. In our conversations, we reached agreements such as, man, when I write a good song, that makes me feel like a million bucks, like I just won the lottery. Or other snippets of conversations such as, if I could have a superpower, I would choose the ability to stop time. but still be able to move without aging, so that I could work on all the creative projects that I wish I had time for. Most people are compelled by the five or six common motivations of human life. Family, wealth, leisure time, sexuality, friends, and career. And then there are people compelled by the need to be creative. And curiously enough, their brains seem to be wired for it, where the reward system's dopamine circuitry supports their creative habits, where working on something creative revitalizes them in the same way that going to a party might revitalize someone else. People like Leonardo da Vinci, Frida Kahlo, Carl Jung, each of whom I've done an episode on, check those out in the podcast feed, now, we, we don't have a common term for this personality trait. Yet, the most famous artists and thinkers throughout time have exhibited this personality trait. Have you ever heard of the term starving artist? This timeless trope refers to just such a person, someone whose life satisfaction is so dependent on their creative work that they will choose financial instability instead of compromising on the time they have for creative work. People like Nikola Tesla, Emily Dickinson, Vincent van Gogh, they fit into this type. Yet this term is, is too derogatory. It doesn't address the fact that many people with this personality type do find a way to balance themselves and their life. They do find a way to make a steady income and have life satisfaction. And so, just because you may be this kind of person where your life satisfaction is largely dependent upon your freedom to pursue personal creative work, it doesn't mean you have to be starving. There is a term I've stumbled on in some psychology research that I think we need to start using for such people. High creative. People like Jimi Hendrix fit this bill. Stephen King, Kendrick Lamar, Marina Abramovich, J.K. Rowling, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Maya Angelou, 
Francisco Goya, Enya, and of course many more who work in private, out of the spotlight of fame or public success, living their lives, balancing a job that pays the bills with a passion for creativity, a compulsion for creative tasks that is higher than the average person, like a creative athlete. It's time that we start to understand these people, that neighbor or friend who you may see as weird and artsy, well, they might be a high creative. According to how their brain is wired, they may find it more enjoyable to be working on a novel or painting than to go bowling with new friends. Is it really their fault or could it be just the way their brain is wired? I think the signs point to the latter. In studying the journals and biographies of creative geniuses, you begin to see this pattern arise, this personality trait. Just as a person can be born with certain physical gifts or advantages, perhaps they are more athletic than the average person. Or another person may be born with a propensity for mathematics and critical thinking. In this same way, it seems, some people are born with a compulsion to engage with more creative work than others. These are the high creatives. And these humans need art, quite literally. Take away their ability to be creative and they will wither and die, or fall into depression and be shells of who they were. To them, being creative is not a choice or a luxury, it's actually a necessity. Take away an athlete's ability to train and compete, and the same thing happens to them. And so we need to expand our understanding of the creative mind to include this personality trait. High creatives, they're out there. And they're probably doing beautiful, meaningful things. As a segue into exploring our last reason, let us listen to a poem by Emily Dickinson, one of my favorite poets. For those unfamiliar with her, she was a recluse in the 1800s who lived in Massachusetts. She is credited as having a substantial impact on American poetry. She is often considered one of the most important poets in American literature. And she was most certainly a high creative. The poem's title, There's a Certain Slant of Light. There's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons, that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us. We can find no scar but internal difference where the meanings are. None may teach it any. Tis the seal despair and imperial affliction sent us of the air. When it comes, the landscape listens. Shadows hold their breath. When it goes, just like the distance on the look of death. Part three. Art communicates the inexpressible. In the 1920s, the Swiss psychologist Carl Jung began to integrate a new practice into his therapy sessions. He began to encourage his patients to paint and draw their dreams and fantasies. Today, this method is known as art therapy. But in the 1920s, no such practice existed. 
and under the predominant Freudian approach of therapy, it was unconventional. Jung said, The aim of this method of expression was to make unconscious contents accessible and so bring them closer to the patient's understanding. Unquote. One specific encouragement Jung would give was for the patient to paint a mandala that contained the important aspects of their life. This process helped a patient to orient themselves more firmly in the aspects of their life that mattered, especially in times of anxiety and self-doubt. The result would be the patient would be more self-aware and more lucid about the motivations and causes of their mental or emotional blockages. It seems Jung discovered the benefits of this approach through his own self-exploration. In 1913, he began explorative journeys into his own unconscious through meditation. The results of these were then written in his journal and elaborated on in artwork and paintings. The work came to be known as The Red Book, and I cover it in much greater detail in episodes 11 and 12 of this podcast. I highly recommend you check those out. Now, this was a distinct divergence from the prevailing Freudian approach to psychology, in which the therapist maintains control throughout a session by asking leading questions and encouraging the patient to freely speak their thoughts, fears, and fantasies. This process is always guided by the therapist. But Jung intuited that if a patient engaged their fantasies and dreams through art, then it opened up a sort of dialogue between their conscious and unconscious mind. It gave the patient an active role rather than a passive role. They were no longer a victim of circumstance or a victim of their own hidden motivations. But now, through creating artwork, they could feel a certain ownership and even responsibility to their thoughts and deeper selves. In the book, The Practice of Psychotherapy, page 47, Jung describes that he urges his patients to paint in reality what they had seen in dream or fantasy. He goes on. As a rule, I am met with the objection, but I am not a painter. To this I usually reply that neither are modern painters, and that consequently modern painting is free for all, and that anyhow it is not a question of beauty, but only of the trouble one takes with the picture. How true this is I saw recently in the case of a talented professional portraitist. She had to begin my way of painting all over again with pitiably childish efforts, literally as if she had never held a brush in her hand. To paint what we see before us is a different art from painting what we see within. Many of my more advanced patients then begin to paint. I can well understand that everyone will be profoundly impressed with the utter futility of this sort of dilettantism. Do not forget, however, that we are speaking not of people who still have to prove their social usefulness, but of those who can no longer see any sense in being socially useful, and who have come upon the deeper and more dangerous question of the meaning of their own individual lives. To be a particle in the mass has meaning and charm only for the man who has not yet reached that stage, but none for the man who is sick to death of being a particle. Although my patients occasionally produce artistically beautiful things that might very well be shown in modern art exhibitions, 
I nevertheless treat them as completely worthless when judged by the canons of real art. As a matter of fact, it is essential that they should be considered worthless. Otherwise, my patients might imagine themselves to be artists, and the whole point of the exercise would be missed. It is not a question of art at all, or rather, it should not be a question of art, but of something more and other than mere art, namely the living effect upon the patient himself, the meaning of individual life whose importance from the social standpoint is negligible, stands here at its highest, and for its sake the patient struggles to give form, however crude and childish, to the inexpressible. And here, Jung helps us discover our third reason for why humans need art, art's ability to effectively communicate the inexpressible. What do we mean by inexpressible? That which cannot be easily or accurately explained through common language. This has manifold implications. For our sake, let's narrow it down. Art has the ability to communicate the inexpressible. The first implication. The inexpressible can be defined as that which is in the unconscious of every individual and in the collective unconscious of every society. We cannot easily describe the contents of our minds, especially those aspects which are hidden from our view. This is essentially why we all go to therapists. A therapist helps to guide us in unraveling the hidden workings of our mind, especially when those hidden workings are not aligned to our health and well-being. As the poet W.H. Auden famously said, we are lived by powers we pretend to understand. Artists such as Salvador Dali, who we covered in episode 7, spent their entire career trying to represent the contents of their unconscious mind in their artwork. His paintings are often surreal, erotic, violent, and poetic. Dali would often claim that a great artist merely transmits the symbols in their own unconscious, and it is the public's job to project any meaning onto the art. He was famous for using a method called the falling spoon method to reach a hypnagogic state, where his mind would balance on the edge between waking and dreaming, and the imagery from his unconscious would then flood in. The neat thing about such a practice is that once you do it often enough, your regular waking state begins to have a more open and fluid relationship with your unconscious. But the distinction here is that Dolly was doing it deliberately. He was trying to meet the unconscious and represent its messages in much the same way that Jung was trying to interact with the unconscious in the Red Book. In my personal experience, as a creative, I notice that before I have fully voiced and understood any emotionally nuanced experience, my mind tries to express that experience through art or music. This may be a compulsion that has developed over years of encouraging this behavior, or it is because this is a natural compulsion experienced by many people. And even if someone doesn't think they are particularly skilled in any art form, they could gain great benefit from this approach, much like Jung encouraged in his patients. In that same book's 
passage, Jung goes on. But why do we encourage patients when they arrive at a certain stage in their development to express themselves by means of brush, pencil, or pen at all? Here again, my prime purpose is to produce an effect. In the state of psychological childhood described above, the patient remains passive, but now he begins to play an active part. To start off, he puts down on paper what he has passively seen, thereby turning it into a deliberate act. He not only talks about it, he is actually doing something about it. Psychologically speaking, it makes a vast difference whether a man has an interesting conversation with his doctor two or three times a week, the results of which are left hanging in midair, or whether he has to struggle for hours with refractory brush and colors only to produce in the end something which, taken at its face value, is perfectly senseless. If it were really senseless to him, the effort to paint it would be so repugnant that he would scarcely be brought to perform this exercise a second time, but because his fantasy does not strike him as entirely senseless, his busying himself with it only increases its effect upon him. Moreover, the concrete shaping of the image enforces a continuous study of it in all its parts, so that it can develop its effects to the full. This invests the bare fantasy with an element of reality, which lends it greater weight and greater driving power. And these rough and ready pictures do indeed produce effects which, I must admit, are rather difficult to describe. For instance, a patient needs only to have seen once or twice how much he is freed from a wretched state of mind by working at a symbolical picture, and he will always turn to this means of release whenever things go badly with him. In this way, something of inestimable importance is won, the beginning of independence, a step towards psychological maturity. The patient can make himself creatively independent through this method, if I may call it such, he is no longer dependent on his dreams or on his doctor's knowledge. Instead, by painting himself, he gives shape to himself." Unquote. What else might the inexpressible imply? Earlier, we covered the notion that art provides the mind orientation in the infinite nuance of its lived experiences. One such area that we haven't much discussed is emotions. There is truly an infinite variety and nuance to the emotions we are capable of feeling, and describing these emotions using only common language can be near impossible. Of all the arts, it seems that music is able to most effectively hijack our emotions. It only takes about 30 seconds of listening to a certain song or instrumental, and we can't help but be seduced by what we are hearing. If we are familiar with that song, we can't help but be transported even to another time and place, to memories of people we once knew or relationships we once had, and with those memories come emotions. Studies have been done which prove this physiological reaction too. It is known that when you are intently listening to music, 
your heart rate actually adjusts to meet the tempo of the song you are hearing. I've been a musician for over 20 years, and that fact, it still amazes me. But even more than just memories or heartbeat adjustment, the sound of music itself seems to inspire emotional reactions. This is why every movie and TV show you ever watch has music. The harmonies, textures, melodies, and rhythms, they have a magical effect. And again, it doesn't take much. Whenever I'm in a sour mood in the morning, I turn on a playlist from one of my favorite bands, and within two songs my mood has shifted, and I'm singing along instead. As an art form, music is somehow able to convey emotion and mood, often without telling you anything specific at all. Let's test this out. Let's listen to one of my favorite pieces of classical music, a selection from Mozart's Requiem. The piece is entitled Lacrimosa. L-A-C-R-Y-M-O-S-A. While listening, ask yourself, what emotions is this conveying? What does it make you feel? Are you imagining a scenario? Does it remind you of a memory?
It's a stunning piece of music. What did you feel? What thoughts or images crossed into your mind? If I had to describe the emotional nuance of the piece, I would say it is mournful, dark, tragic, heavy, but also graceful, spiritual, beautiful, and even tender. All of that in three minutes' time. The magic of music is its ability to convey a mixture of emotions, even emotions that are often conflicting, like tangled nuances. Perhaps when you feel depressed, you, you feel compelled to listen to depressing music because that music helps you to untangle and understand your own emotions. And although music does this exceptionally well, every art medium can engage our emotions in, in some way. Film also does it incredibly effectively. There's a powerful film called Rabbit Hole, starring Nicole Kidman and Aaron Eckhart. It was directed by John Cameron Mitchell. Rabbit Hole tells the story of a married couple who tragically lose their four-year-old son in an accident. The film follows the emotional cost of such an awful event and the personal turmoil it creates in their relationship. Somehow, the film is able to convey an emotion that is unconveyable, ineffable grief. Grief so immense that it leaves ripples of emotional devastation for years to come. How can someone describe to someone else what it feels like to carry the unbearable weight of losing a child? That is ineffable grief. And yet, in art like that film, Rabbit Hole, we are able to experience a small portion of it, to empathize with another's lived experiences. And paradoxically, those people who have lived through such tragedy they may watch this film and it may help them in untangling the tightly wound nuance of their own thoughts and emotions. Watching it may be emotionally devastating, but it may also have a therapeutic effect to know that others have also experienced those depths. And so we have explored two aspects of the inexpressible that art shares with us. Those being the unconscious mind, as we understood through the example of Carl Jung, and the personal emotional world as we understood through music and films like Rabbit Hole. But there is one final aspect to consider. In 2005, I was in my second year of undergrad and I ventured into Manhattan to visit a very unique gallery by one of my favorite artists, Alex Gray. That's G-R-A-Y. Little did I know that it would become one of the most significant personal experiences with art that I would ever have. I've always felt that going to an art museum alone is actually one of the rarest treats you can give yourself. No pressure to rush, you can take your time and get lost, you can stare at one artwork for as long as your heart desires. And so I made this trip alone. The gallery was called the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, it was created by the visionary artist Alex Gray. Many of you may know him from the art he has done for the metal band Tool. Much of their album art and stage show is his artwork. But this encounter I had with his spiritually oriented paintings was even before his rise to public prominence through the Tool Association. The Chapel of Sacred Mirrors was on the edge of Chelsea in Manhattan. 
a few blocks walking distance from the subway stop. You ring the bell and you're buzzed in at the door. After ascending a flight of stairs, you arrive. You walk toward the front desk, crossing the hardwood floor. The attendant there greets you, and you notice there is a distinct aura to the place. There are no people. Soft and ambient music is steadily playing in the background, giving you this sensation that you are not walking, but you are floating through the space. There's something unique and buzzing about the energy in the air. It's clear that special attention has been made to give the gallery an intimate warm lighting. There are no windows, so the gallery is able to control the experience down to the smallest detail. It is welcoming. Hues of warm orange, red, gold, and black permeate the surrounding walls. It feels intimate and personal, yet gives you the impression of a sacred space, like a small cathedral or temple. There's even the smell of incense in the air. The attendant suggests you start your viewing experience in the room on the right. As you walk toward it, you notice the doorway into the room is massive. Two large columns with an archway above. The arch is supported by ancient-looking Assyrian gods with outstretched wings, something you'd likely see in the ancient Assyrian exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum. Passing through their connected gaze feels symbolic somehow, like a ritual has begun. The room is a wide, long hall. The walls are a deep red, like the inside of a womb. There are 20 floor-to-ceiling paintings that line the left and right walls. Each one is roughly seven feet tall, and each painting contains one human figure. As you start on the left, the first artwork that meets you is a strange six-foot-tall silhouette of a human figure in lead. Surrounded by metal carvings of the periodic table of elements. The following artworks are figures of human anatomy, a skeleton, the circulatory system, the muscular system, all life size standing in front of you with the intention that they serve as a mirror. In this way, the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors is more than just a gallery. Its ambition is to be a spiritual experience. Alex Gray's vision for this moves beyond just a paint on the canvases. He encourages you to face these life-size paintings and engage with them. Stand facing them with your body and reflect upon them as if they were a mirror into yourself. As these mirrors progress, you are no longer looking at the internal anatomy of the human body, but now you are staring at a nude woman. She's facing you, upright, and you can't help but engage by matching her position. The first inclination, as it always seems to be, is to gaze into her eyes. The painting is incredibly lifelike. The skin looks alive, she's on a black background, and a quick passing glance might trick your eyes into believing that these are real people standing in doorways rather than frames. The longer you stay here, 
the more paradoxical this effect becomes. The following human figures are men and women of different races, each engaging you individually, nude and direct. The intention of the artist seems clear. As you first engage the universal aspects of our physical bodies, the bones, the circulatory system, the muscles and organs, you are then faced with the surface level, the facial structure and skin color, the social identity, and somehow these then melt away. After the physical bodies, we are introduced to our spiritual bodies. The first in this series is a painting you must see to believe. Look up the painting Psychic Energy System by Alex Gray. It is an overwhelmingly detailed representation of the energetic nature of our body. It seems alive with electricity, immense rays of energy emanating from the brain with the chakras of the spiritual body in view along the length of the spine. This is when the paintings begin to take on their visionary aspects. No longer the literal and physical representations of the body, but now venturing into the mental, spiritual, and sublime. Then there is the painting Spiritual Energy System, which shows a mind-bogglingly complex network of waves of energy emanating from a central human-like being, no longer restrained by the physical body. Then the Universal Mind Lattice, which depicts the infinite energies of light that connect us all on upper spiritual planes. The paintings that follow show religious deities. This creates a startling effect as they are presented in front of you in much the same way that the bodies of the other humans were. You are presented with an opportunity to engage in a meaningful way with the Buddhist deity, with Christ, and with Sophia, the ancient representation of the primordial creator God. Each of these is worth staring at for an hour, and I hope to return to Alex Gray's work again in another episode to further understand their symbolism. These paintings are startling and fresh, unlike anything you have stood in front of before. The intention isn't art appreciation. They are reaching for something more transcendent. And in many ways, we achieve this state. You are left stunned with awe. the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors left on me has honestly never subsided. That experience of walking through this space alone, confronting the nature of my existence, that is something rare and special. Something you can't describe in words. Something inexpressible. This is the highest potential of art and creative endeavor. Its ability to convey spirituality and even engage spiritual states. And when you look at art's history, we see that it is intrinsically linked with religion. 
There is no mosque, cathedral, or temple you can enter in which you will not be submerged in art, music, and symbolism. There is something about creativity and spirituality which cannot be separated. Creativity is the language of the human soul. Why Humans Need Art We've covered a lot of ground. So, let's review. What is art? Art is any work created through creative intent. What is creative intent? It is the intention to bring something into the world which has not been there before. Why is art? Art is a natural byproduct of a complex intelligence attempting to understand the infinite nuance of its lived experiences. Why do humans need art? Three primary reasons. One, the mind seeks orientation, and art orients us in the world. Two, artists need art. High creatives define themselves and their life satisfaction by the ability to make personal creative work. 3. Art communicates the inexpressible. This includes the contents of your unconscious mind, complex emotions such as ineffable grief, and finally, experiences of spirituality. I hope this deep dive has given you much food for thought. Challenging myself over the course of this month to answer this question has honestly stretched my intellect to its breaking point. It's a question I have asked ever since I was a teenager, cooped up in my room making art and music, while the other kids on the block were outside playing sports. Nothing against sports, of course. There's no doubt that these three primary reasons may not be everyone's three primary reasons. Perhaps you may have ten reasons, or one reason, and I can respect that. If the question compels us to disagree and discuss even further, that is good. It is an indication that we are hashing out something important, something worth arguing over and defining. On that front, I have started a subreddit for this podcast. The subreddit is a place where we can have these exact conversations and you can share your opinions on why you think humans need art. I would love to hear them. You can find our subreddit by going to reddit.com and searching Creative Codex, 
or by typing this address in your browser, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash creative codex. That's r-e-d-d-i-t dot com forward slash the letter r forward slash c-r-e-a-t-i-v-e-c-o-d-e-x. Head on over, join the community, and join the conversation. I'll be there too. If you enjoyed this episode and want to become a patron, head on over to my Patreon page and subscribe on one of several tier levels, each with its own perks at patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N. You can also listen to exclusive Creativity Tip mini-episodes only available for Patreon supporters there. On that note, a hearty and warm thank you to my Patreon supporters, MA53N, Jay Booth, DVM, and Yuri Valerio, and Vero. Thank you for your continued support. It truly encourages me to know that there are people who find my creative work so meaningful to them. Thank you. For all things social media and music, follow me on Instagram at mjdorian, and definitely head over to our brand spanking new subreddit. I think it will be a wonderful way to explore further insights beyond each episode. I'll see you there. Thank you for your support. This has been Creative Codex. I am MJ Dorian. Stay safe, be well, and I hope you use some of that social distancing solitude to do something creative. Chances are you might even need it.